welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So my guest today is David Edmonds. He is officially a philosopher, but he has spent the majority of his career working for the BBC as a feature maker for uh, BBC World Service on the radio. So he has, he has a degree from Oxford, as well as a PhD in philosophy from Open University. And so that's sort of where his core, you know, uh, expertise is. And, and um, he, he wrote a book in 2001 called Wittgenstein's Poker, um, which I guess, you know, you could probably argue is, was what put him on the map. And then from there, he's um, uh, written a number of really interesting books and also put out a lot of uh, great podcasts, largely around the sort of philosophy and social science and, and all that sort of stuff. His, his most popular is Philosophy Bites, uh, which he co-hosts with Nigel Warburton. But there's also Philosophy 24-7 and Social Science Bites, which I uh, like a lot and I listen to. And so, yeah, I just uh, I, I thought David's work is cool and I look up to you know, sort of what he's been able to do and how he's been able to build his career around following his interests and, you know, using his PhD and, and his interest in Wittgenstein and philosophy and ethics and all that sort of stuff to, you know, follow his interests and, and make a career out of it. And that's, you know, the kind of thing that I'm interested in. And so I was just curious to know more about how he conceptualized, how he did that, the different, you know, decisions he made and, you know, the, 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 the different areas that he's interested in. So it was a fun conversation uh, and I look forward for everyone to be able to listen to it. Without any further ado, here is David Edmonds. people is is where did you grow up i grew up in southeast london in a rather boring suburb called bickley which is part of the borough of bromley but essentially it's a commuter belt and it's a kind of middle class professional area very uh, at least it was when i was growing up very um white and english um, with people who read the Times newspaper and the Daily Telegraph newspaper, and uh, yeah, not at all sort of cosmopolitan like many parts of London. So yeah, that's where I grew up. Was there a, a football team you grew up supporting? Yes, from the age of six, I supported a team that had nothing to do with the area in which I lived. The team was West Ham. Yeah. And I still support them. Uh, I don't know what in America. I think there's a there's a looser tie between your sort of lifetime uh, affiliation and, and the club. Whereas in the UK, it's part of the culture that once you're once you have a club, you're basically stuck with that club forever. You know, it doesn't matter where you move to, whether you move countries or to a different part of the country, you're stuck with your club. And unfortunately, my best friend when I was six was a West Ham fan. So I became a West Ham fan. I've been stuck with West Ham for over 50 years and they've had very little success in that period. They were, um, in fact, in 1966, when England won the World Cup, I like to say that West Ham won the World Cup because the, the three key players in the 1966 World Cup were all West Ham players. They were Jeff Hurst, who scored the hat-trick, Martin Peters, who scored the fourth goal, and the captain, Bobby Moore, all West Ham players. Mm. So uh, the, apart from that, they've had very, very little success. So it's been a frustrating 
50 odd years, but they've just moved into a new stadium, which um, has room for a huge number of people. So potentially for the first time, they are a big club and that's going to take some psychological adjustment for West Ham fans because we may have to get used to West Ham actually winning a few more games, which I think will be difficult for us. But, you know, I, there's a certain joy, if you can call it that, that English people take in, in having a team that hasn't done well for at least, you know, several hundred years. Uh, there's, yes. a, there's a little bit of pride <laughs> that, that's taken in that. Uh, whereas, like, just wanting to support, you know, like one of the top teams like a Manchester City, it's a very foreigner sort of mindset. It's a very American or, you know, yeah. someone from abroad yeah. mindset. There's something that English yeah. people do love about, well, you know, my team, they haven't yeah. won a game since 1988, yeah. but... Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know about <laughs> centuries, but certainly decades. That, that's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. There's, there's a great deal of suspicion of people who support the major clubs unless they come from the area and have a good excuse. I mean, football is a very working-class game in the UK and very community-based. And, and so, you know... Historically, you support the team that you're closest to. That wasn't my true in my case. But when people end up um, supporting Man U or Liverpool and they're from London, you know, they're, 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 there's there's um, some scepticism that people have towards those kinds of supporters. And yes, there's a sort of degree of authenticity that you get from supporting a completely rubbish team. <laughs> Okay, so uh, so what were you interested in uh, when you were uh, beginning at Oxford for your undergraduate? What were your what were your sort of interests at that time? You mean my intellectual interests or my interests beyond academia? Let's uh, start interests beyond academia and then wind our way towards uh, academic interests and that sort of thing. Gosh, well. Um, I'm interested in lots and lots and lots and lots of things. Um, so as a kid, my main hobby had been chess. I spent most of my early years playing chess until I was about 17 or 18. And then when I got to university, or rather probably the year before I went to university, I sort of, I gave up chess because it was antisocial and also because I'd reached a kind of decent level, but clearly wasn't going to meet, uh, you know, reached the very top. Um, and yeah, at that age, other pursuits seem more fun. Um, so, but I mean, chess had been my major interest, but then, you know, I was interested in all sorts of sports. I read a lot, went to the cinema a lot. Um, I was... Uh, I mean, the, the the my intellectual interest, which has become philosophy, basically had played no part in my life until the year before I went to university. So I think I was more interested in in politics and history and economics um, before I went to university. But uh, outside academia, yeah, had a whole range of interests. I read enormous amount of literature, which I've never really done since but until I was 18 I, I, I normally had my head in a in a work of fiction um and yeah that's mostly gone so uh, was there can you remember like a moment or a work or a thinker that sort of sparked that initial interest in philosophy um 
and and put you on on you know the kind of that general track that that, that you followed for so much of your career i can yeah yeah i can name the specific book it's language truth and logic by freddie air which i must have read either in preparation for the Oxford general exam. In those days, you had to take a special exam to get into Oxford or Cambridge, and I might have read it in preparation for that, or if not, I read it after I'd been accepted um, as a way of, of sort of reading in slowly into philosophy before I got to Oxford. So it was language, truth, and logic, and... Um, it was a very exciting book for somebody like me. So I was a militant atheist and very, very intolerant of religion, sceptical about morality, Not didn't have very strong views about aesthetics, but basically was an instinctive subjectivist about aesthetics. And so Air fulfilled... Uh, he, he, he ticked all those boxes uh, um, and uh, he gave me a reason to be contemptuous of the things I was contemptuous about. I'm not so contemptuous about them anymore. But And it was written in a very polemical style. It's pretty straightforward. It sort of seems to solve an enormous amount of philosophy in a very short, engaging book. And there isn't a kind of scintilla of doubt in language, truth and logic. It's It's, it's the work of a young brash man and i found it very very compelling and uh okay so you graduate with a you know fancy oxford ppe degree uh i'm curious at that point what did you did you what did you think you were doing like what was what was the sort of game plan going forward or 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 how did you see your career developing in that point I really didn't have a game plan. I had no idea what I was going to do. The subject I was most interested in of of the P, P and E was the P for philosophy, but it was the subject in which my grades were the worst. And so I was unusual in that most people doing PPE drop one of the three of them in the second year. And I wish I dropped economics because I, I enjoyed economics up until what's called prelims, the first year exams. And then after that, I began to find it, well, A, quite difficult and B, sort of more and more divorced from reality. It was it, it became very sort of abstract, which philosophy, of course, is abstract, but it's in the nature of philosophy to be abstract. Whereas some of the economics seemed to be quite divorced from what they were supposed to be modelling. Um, but I kept them all going because my philosophy papers weren't as good as my papers in the other uh, two subjects. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I got more and more interested in philosophy over the course of those three years and decided at the end that I was going to do the BPhil, which is a two-year philosophy degree, quite prestigious. In the old days, anybody doing the BPhil, you could go straight to a, a philosophy academic job. But again, that wasn't really in my mind. I didn't know why I was doing the BPhil other than I was very interested in philosophy. And it wasn't part of my plan to become an academic. It was partly 
a lack of other options. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I didn't want to go into the city like so many people were doing. I didn't particularly want to become a civil servant and hadn't yet thought about the media. So it was it was partly a lack of options, and and partly that I was I had become yeah very interested in philosophy. So I, I applied for the B Phil, and um, the condition was that I got a first class degree, um, which I did. But once again, my philosophy papers were worse than my other two papers, and I got a letter from. Oxford, from a very famous philosopher who you, you'll have heard of, called Michael Dummett, who must have, must have been head of the philosophy faculty, and I was turned down from the BPhil initially, and my tutor at Worcester College, which was the college I was at, appealed and said, "Well, you know, David met the criteria. You, 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 um, he's got the grades, and somewhere." Um, I'm afraid the letter's been lost. I think I had it at one stage. Michael Dummett wrote a letter to Sabina Loverbond um, in which he mistook me for somebody else called Edmonds who he used to play bridge with. And he said, oh, I remember Edmonds. Yes, yes, well, a, a bridge part, former bridge partner of mine. And I was somehow allowed in, into the course on entirely bogus grounds. <laughs> um, I, wish I, I wish I'd kept that letter. Anyway, so I started the BPhil the year after. and went So I went straight from the PPE degree to the BPhil, a two-year degree, uh, on the basis of um, one of the world's greatest philosophers mistaking me for his old bridge partner. All right. Uh, <laughs> whatever it takes, I guess. That's, that's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. it's better to be lucky than good. Um, it's, not how, it's, not, it's, it's, it's certainly not how these things would be decided now, and it's not how they should have been decided then. But yeah. as I say, I, 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 it was not clear to me why I was rejected in the first place. So, <laughs> um, okay, and then so, but things went sufficiently well in that program uh, that you decided to do a PhD. Was that right after uh, that, or what's a? Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about that transition. No, so after my BPhil, I decided I didn't want to do a PhD, mm. and I decided I didn't want to do a PhD because I thought that I could never become Wittgenstein and that if you couldn't become Wittgenstein, there was no point being an academic philosopher. And so I was self-aware enough to realize that I was no Wittgenstein. Honestly, and I consider that like a pretty like, uh, like significant insight. Uh, I think that, that that can be pretty hard to discern in oneself, that oneself is not Bertrand Russell. Well, or, yeah, or well, Wittgenstein, he's, he's a high bar to meet. Yeah. He's obviously a high bar to meet. And... <laughs> and, and you know, I didn't want to spend my life tinkering, tinkering around writing kind of philosophy articles that were, you know, okay, but didn't really make kind of leaps and bounds in the in the discipline. And I thought that was what the future was if I stayed in academic philosophy. So I decided I just wasn't um, good enough. Um, I'm, I'm setting a very kind of high bar. And so um, I applied for, I went to the careers department in Oxford and um, they only had two jobs going at that time for graduates. One was in the city 
and one was working for a, a, a think tank called Oxford Analytica. And I applied for both of them. And uh, I got the one in the city and I got the one in uh, this think tank one, which was a job that sounded much more interesting. But I hadn't realised the income gap between the two jobs. And I think had I realised that, I would have taken the city job. I'm very, very glad that I was sort of kept in ignorance. Um, and I ended up taking this other job, which they'd sort of kept me in the dark about quite how low my starting salary was going to be. But it was a very interesting job. It was started by somebody called David Young, who used to be Henry Kissinger's special advisor. And for Kissinger, he, he had to make this um, briefing document every day, analyzing world events. And his rather ingenious idea was to make a newspaper written not by journalists, but by academics. And um, it would be sold at enormous cost. It was incredibly expensive. And we would um, write it in a very analytic way. Um, and we'd sold it only to, in my day, they were selling it to about 40, 40 companies who were paying, as I say, ridiculous sums of money for this. And um, in fact, if the truth be told, the the the, the um, often it wasn't written by academics, but by the kind of postgraduates who were working in it, because the academics they may have known about the I don't know the Indonesian rice plantation between 1864 and 1867, but they weren't very good on current Indonesian politics. So it was left to the uh, the the, the, the postgrads who were working in the company to write much of the of the short paper. But it was a fantastic training ground for journalism. Um, it was a very interesting, strange place. David Young, the founder, I think, had been involved in Watergate. And he was debarred, I think, um, uh, he had to leave the legal profession and he came to Oxford. I think he was, called, I think he was the plumber in Watergate. Um, so it was, it was a very strange place, but I made lots of very good friends there. And it was, as I say, very, very good training ground for uh, a career in journalism. And then what put you back on? So I guess, OK, my uh, before I ask that. So you did your PhD at Open University. Um, was that remote then? Yes. So so after after. OK, so year same as my PhD remote, no classroom involvement, yeah. never going into an office. Same thing I've been no. doing for the last two years, completely remote. Well, OK, well, yeah, not so not exactly. So yeah. what happened was that after about a year and a half at Oxford Analytica, I um, applied for another job. I worked very briefly at The Economist, at their consultancy called The Economist Intelligence Unit. And then I got a job as a writer for the BBC World Service, which had become my ambition to work for the BBC World Service, an organisation I loved and spent um, a long, you know, I spent most of my career linked to the BBC World Service. So that's part of the part of the BBC that broadcasts not to Britain, but to the world. And it has this kind of bird's eye view of the world. It mainly covers um, international news. It has a very um, international perspective on everything. But I still had the philosophical itch. And so um, 
after a few years, I, I went to America for a year to the University of Chicago on something called a Harkness Fellowship, which is a kind of reverse Rhodes Scholarship. So I spent a year at the School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago studying affirmative action. But what I was most interested in was the philosophy of affirmative action. And then when I came back, I started a PhD, which was on the philosophy of discrimination, the philosophy of race, um, which I'd always been interested in. And so I started my PhD part-time and my supervisor was a woman called Janet Radcliffe Richards, who wrote a fantastic book called The Skeptical Feminist. And she would see me wherever, whenever I wanted. I lived in London, she lived in London. And so every two or three months, I would go off and sit with Janet and talk about progress or lack of progress. And then she left to go to UCL, um, University College London. And so I had to have another supervisor uh, inside the Open University, who was a guy called John Pike, who is, was a, is a political theorist and writes about the philosophy of sport now. And Janet became my external supervisor. So she was still my main supervisor, but um, I now had two supervisors. So I spent about five years, I guess, um, maybe six years, doing my PhD part-time whilst also working for the BBC. Very cool. Um, so I guess at this point, uh, something that I'm interested to know would be, so you have this background in philosophy and you have, you know, all of this experience and, and really legitimate, you know, sort of understanding of in it. But uh, like you said, you don't go on to be an academic philosopher in the sense of like, okay, I'm going to write my, you know, academic journal articles and I'm going to try and change the, the sort of structure of a field that I'm involved in. Uh, so I guess I'm interested to know your perspective on what do you think your power is in having done philosophy as a career, as being able to make a career out of philosophy, um, but being able to approach it kind of as an outsider, not someone who's like, here are my pet problems, that sort of stuff, but being able to to take a, a, a wider um, uh, breath on it. How has that sort of worked out for you? Well, so I've always been able to combine philosophy with my job, first of all. So I, I ended up making a lot of philosophy programs at the BBC in various formats. Um, so one of my first ever series was a series on philosophical paradoxes. Can God cook a breakfast so big he can't eat it or she can't eat it? Who knows? Um, uh, the, the pieces is shit paradox and so on. Um, so I was able to bring in philosophy into my day job, but also... I think I brought my journalistic training back into my philosophy. Um, so I was always interested in the history of philosophy. I'm always, I've always been interested in storytelling and narrative, which has been important in journalism. Um, but I brought that into my philosophy. So a lot of my philosophy is about the philosophy, but it has lots of storytelling in it, in, in it as well. So I'm, I'm interested in the personalities. Uh, I'm interested in the people behind the philosophy. I actually also think that is a perfectly sort of justifiable way of doing philosophy itself. That that often, unless one understands uh, the personality behind the philosophy, one doesn't get the philosophy. Um, that you can't understand Wittgenstein's philosophy unless you understand a bit about Wittgenstein the person. 
Um, so I do think it's a sort of a genuinely valuable sort of academic exercise. Um, An but interest that's in the to- uh, personal history of academics and thinkers and scientists. Hmm, sounds sounds like a great idea for a podcast interview show. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, you go. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I totally am on board with that. With that, <laughs> that that argument. That's in order to understand an idea fully, you have to understand the the yeah, person yeah, in the mean, context who created it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some philosophers. One I'm working on now who were very ahistorical. You know that there are philosophical problems, and it doesn't matter where the problem arises, what century or from whom, and you just analyze the problem. But actually, you know, it's it, it's worthwhile to think: well, how did this problem? Who first thought up this puzzle or this problem? And what were they trying to solve? Um, and what is this philosopher saying? And you can't really understand that unless you put that philosopher in their historical and social context. Um, yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's really interesting. Uh, here's, here's sort of uh, a deviation from the, the, the personal stuff, but I'm curious since we're talking about, you know, philosophical problems and, and putting them in context, what, what philosophical problem do you think you slash the idea that you worked with slash the people that you've read that sort of stuff have made the least progress on uh, during your time in philosophy? What has been what has proved to be the most um, intractable, least fruitful philosophical problem you've engaged with or seen other people engage with over the last, you know, however many? Oh, years? blimey. That's a very good question and very tough question. I, I, one that comes to mind instantly, but only because I'm currently writing and think about it, thinking about it, is meta-ethics. Mm. Uh, the status of moral claims. So we we started talking about Freddie Air and and the Vienna Circle who dismissed morality out of hand. Not that they thought that morality wasn't objective, but they thought it didn't have any meaning that moral propositions like it's wrong to murder innocent children <laughs> were literally meaningless because they couldn't be um, shown to be true either by the definitions of the words involved or by any evidence that you could use to, to, to demonstrate the truth or falsity of that proposition. But even if you reject that view of how propositions get their meaning, that they have to meet those rather strict criteria. Even if you reject that Vienna Circle picture of how meaning works, you're still left with that problem that people like John Mackey talked about in the 1970s about, um, he calls it the problem from queerness, that um, the idea that Morality is part of the fabric of the universe. It's just so strange. He calls it, as I say, he calls it queer. Not people wouldn't call it that, but just odd. So weird. You know, in what way is it part of the fabric of reality? It doesn't look like it, a, a table or a chair or this cup of coffee that I'm drinking. You know, they're part of the universe. They're part of what exists. In what sense does morality exist? So. You know, lots of people have tried to address that 
issue and it goes back you know forever and obviously david hume writes about this emmanuel kant writes about this have we made any progress well you know disagreement remains totally fundamental about the the status of moral proposition so there's an example of something which hasn't really progressed in a very uh, important dramatic way um so just to make sure i i i understand it is it that if you have two different moral frameworks uh moral framework a moral framework b how do you adjudicate between them and say in, in uh here's here's a pro here's a con here's here's something uh better no, no, it, it, yeah it's the more it's the more basic question what is the status of a moral claim if you make the claim it is wrong to lie you should always keep your promises you shouldn't murder people. The, 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 one, the thousands of moral propositions that are out there that we make all the time, what is their status? Are they true? Are they false? What does it mean to say they're true or false? Or are they relative? You know, are they relative to a particular culture? Are they just a matter of opinion? What is the status of those moral claims? Now, the claim about the coffee clap, I'm currently drinking a coffee clap. We, on the whole, there are sceptics who say, ah, oh, are you sure that coffee cup is really there? May, you might be dreaming. Um, it, it might be a figment of your imagination. But most people think this coffee cup is part of the universe. It exists. And if I look over there, that coffee cup still exists over here. Um, the status of moral propositions is uh, you know, debated. And so there's no consensus about what it is to say that it is wrong to murder people. And, 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 uh, and you get at one end um, kind of expressionists or emotivists. Uh, you get at the other end, you get extreme realists or objectivists who think that it is objectively true in a slightly different way, but nonetheless a sort of parallel way to the way that this is a cup of coffee, that, it's, that it has an objective truth. And... You know, I would say the disagreement is, is is as wide as ever. That's why you, you wanted an example of, of where there hasn't been much progress. That, that there's no consensus about how to a- answer that. The question about what is the status of moral proposition. So um, obviously this is, I'm, I'm wandering outside of uh, an area that I know very much about. But I'm, my question based off of that is, is what's, does, does that problem actually get easier if you uh, sort of, transfer it to the the legal domain. So if you put it in sort of like, um, you know, terms of positivism and that sort of stuff. So you have, uh, is the law the law because it is based in some sort of moral principles or is the law the law because it's that's what we say it is? Uh, right, and that seems right. like something that's much more asymmetric. A lot of people, a lot more people in right. the, the latter camp there uh, in, in a sort of legal positivism, which seems like a very strong claim to me. And it seems like it's got a lot of the same kind of, um, you know, motivation or, or structure as the question about what is the foundation of a moral claim, but just puts it in a little bit more concrete, perhaps tractable, uh, you know, sense. Yes. So if you're a positivist in the law, you have an easy answer to these things because you have a system and all you're answering is <coughs> what does the system say about what's legal and what's illegal? Um, a 
of course, as you know, lots of legal scholars are not positivists and they think things like human rights have to be founded not on the law, but on something more fundamental, which is morality. So that gets you back into the problem. But if you are a legal positivist, you don't have to set out, step outside that circle. So when, you, when people say, is it really legal? Well, you say, well, the answer is within the system. You're not answering a question about rights and wrongs or morality. You're just answering a question about what is the law? And that's a question about what it is to follow a rule. I mean, you get into all sorts of interesting questions, but nonetheless, it doesn't rest on a fundamental dispute about the status of, of morality. So your answer is, is no, it doesn't get easier if you transfer it to the legal domain. No, it, it does if you're a positivist. Right. It does if you're a positivist. Which if in my, you know, I, my uh, not, like I said, I'm not a legal scholar, but my in my reading of, of the legal you know, jurisprudence, you know, sort of literature is a, like the, the dominant perspective. Well, uh, I, 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 I can't answer that, not being a legal scholar myself. But when I was at university, um, there had been a, um, Herbert Hart, who was from this positivist tradition. But then along comes Ronnie Dworkin, who I think some people would say was the most important legal scholar post-World War Two who very much is not a positivist. Because um, you got to have someone to argue against. And that makes your, right. if you take the, if you take a really right. strong position on the, uh, like the counterintuitive, mostly not right argument as Dworkin did, then you get a really interesting uh, book that everyone wants to argue against. Great. Most, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, you're making a claim <laughs> about the sociology of, 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 of current jurisprudence. I just don't know That's whether fine. it is the case. That yeah. most people are positivists. We'll leave that also as undecidable yeah. within yeah. the system yeah. of our conversation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned being a, 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 a staunch atheist growing up. I'm curious if after all these years of studying philosophy and that sort of stuff, or even just, you know, experiencing life and whatever that's that's meant to you, has your, has your position... Um, not changed, but like, have has have your feelings towards religion, etc. However, you want to frame that, uh, shifted at all. So I remain an atheist. I, I've never had any right desire to to um, sign up to any uh, official religion, or even uh, I've sort of no. Why did you find no sort of um, interest in, in other kind of spiritual movements? Um, I mean, I have a sense of awe and I have a sense of the sublime about the world and sunsets and beautiful architecture, but no religious sensibility. I'm, I'm much more tolerant of it than I used to be, in part because uh, I rather simplistically used to blame... <laughs> you know, much of warfare and, you know, all the evils of the world on organised religion, which I think is totally unfair now. I think I blame it now on human nature and that if humans don't have religions to fight about, they'll fight about something else. So I'm more tolerant of it. I also see the benefit of it. So I, I married a woman who um, doesn't... Um, so uh, she's part of a... Um, a synagogue 
and she sort of follows um, various religious practices, but there hasn't. There's not much theological underpinning. It's just a way of life for her. And I can see the benefit of those rituals. You know, I can see the strength of communities and the support groups that come along with religion and the, the sort of meaning it gives you. I can see all that now. So I'm much more tolerant, but I, I haven't changed my mind about that. Philosophy certainly hasn't made me change my mind about that. Philosophy is a predominantly secular discipline. I mean, I've changed my mind about other things. I, I, I'm now a vegetarian, I think, because of my philosophy. So it was philosophers who changed my mind about that aspect of my relationship to, to the world, and, and in particular, Peter Singer and, and some of his early work on animal rights. So philosophy has led me to change my mind on various things, but, but not on religion, no. So I want to ask you about your podcast, uh, your, which you co-host called Philosophy Bites, which has been downloaded over 40 million times, uh, uh, very popular and just a cool show to get into uh, whatever, you know, bite-sized philosophical uh, topic and, and hear from an expert usually. So I, I'm curious to, to know uh, when did that get started and when did it start to take off? What did, what, uh, you know, what did the sort of initial phase of that look like for you? What happened was that in 2005, I was making a series for the BBC on the technological revolution. And I had a friend who'd left the BBC and he'd started a podcast which still exists, which recorded out of copyright children's stories for parents to download. So he re-recorded children's stories, reworked them a bit, and parents could download them for their kids on long car journeys. And I thought it was a very clever idea. And he was getting at the time 40,000 downloads a month. And I thought, wow, 40,000 downloads a month. And I went to go and interview him about this. And I thought, well, he's done this for um, children's stories. Maybe I could do this for philosophy and I was finding it slightly difficult to get philosophy commissioned for the BBC it's very difficult to get anything commissioned in the BBC and I've had a couple of setbacks I'd, I've done this series called um, philosophy in a nutshell many 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 years ago where I interviewed six philosophers about different six well-known philosophers about six philosophers in the canon so I interviewed Bernard Williams about Nietzsche and Nora O'Neill about Kant and David Pears I think about uh, I know, maybe Anthony Grayling about Wittgenstein, Miles Berniat about Aristotle. Um, anyway, so I'd, I'd, and it was a very popular series. We got 100 letters from around the world, which in those days, it was way before email, was a, a big response. And I, I was finding it difficult to get this recommissioned. I thought, well, actually, I don't need the BBC anymore. I can just do it from my bedroom or my bathroom. And I'd had a, a little... Um, dealing with Nigel about something. I've gone to see Nigel interview somebody and, and his interviewing skills were very impressive. You know, it's not as easy. You're very good at it. It's not actually that easy to be a good interviewer and to ask the right questions at the right time and to be very clear. And he had those virtues. And I approached him, actually barely knowing him at the time, saying, how about we do this podcast? And he's got all the kind of 
podcast skills about um i've got all the recording skills and, and and the editing skills and he's quite kind of tech savvy about putting the podcast up so in 2007 we did our first interview with simon blackburn on plato's cave and i think amazingly in that year we did 50 interviews which we could never manage now and it took off very quickly we definitely had first leader advantage. I mean, there was nobody else in the podcast field. There was nobody else doing philosophy podcasts at all. So it took off very, very quickly. And yeah, we've had, I think now, 43 million downloads. We we put up um, only about one podcast a month now. Uh, we could, maybe we will step up again at some stage. We're both very busy with lots of other projects. But it's also the case that there's an incredible backlist of interviews now, of hundreds of interviews. And actually, if you want a philosophical education, you could do a lot worse than just listen to philosophy bites from end to end. Um, and for me, it's been like a, fr a free philosophical education myself because I'd been through the Oxford system, which is quite narrow, partly because I'd only do I'd done these... Um, PPE, I'd, I'd stuck to all three. So I had a, a weak undergraduate base. Then I only did, I did three papers for my BPhil plus a dissertation. So there were vast swathes of philosophy that um, I didn't know about. You know, Leibniz and Schopenhauer, I knew nothing about. I'd never done existentialism. And, you know, I consider it, what I've had is an amazing free education. And, and, and you know, the, the way I like to think about it is that Nowadays, it, it costs British students £9,000 a year to go and study at university. And I've probably done the equivalent of, I don't know how many, <laughs> seven philosophy degrees, really. So I've got £63,000 of free philosophy tuition. That's how I like to think of it. And I've spoken, we've spoken to the most interesting philosophers around the world. And you know, on the whole, people have always, I've, almost nobody has, has turned us down. People seem pleased to be on it and they get a huge number of listeners. So, so I don't know the, 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 the early ones I haven't checked, but Simon Blackburn's one has probably got over a quarter of a million um, number of downloads, which is quite a lot for, you know, an obscure philosophy podcast about, about Plato's cave. Yeah. Really cool. So you mentioned interviewing uh, and uh, the skills involved in it. So I'm curious what do you think makes for a good interview? Uh, do you have any interviewing strategies? What do you think you've gotten better at over the years? Uh, what sort of things come to mind on that front? Oh, I think there's lots of things to think about. Um, some of them apply to all sorts of activities beyond podcasting. So I think it applies to essays, movies, uh, <laughs> poems, that, that, that beginnings and ends are very important. You know, you should think about how to get into the podcast and then think about how to get out of it. People remember beginnings, they remember ends. I think do your homework. Um, don't try and wing it too much. But have a trajectory in your head. But make sure it's a skeleton and not a fully fleshed out body because you want to have the option to 
go off in slightly different directions. You know, you need to be listening and to respond to answers. Um, never try and show off. That's not your role. In a way, just like an editor of the of the podcast, um, your role is to be like a good referee in a football match. And a good referee in a football match is somebody who, at the end of the football match, nobody really remembers the, re- the referee. I mean, they're, they're, a bad referee is somebody who's had to intervene uh, and people are talking about referee decisions. Actually, you sort of really want to be in the background, you're being the kind of prodder, but uh, but but bringing out uh, the person you're you're interviewing. Never, never, it's important. I mean, lots of it, it interviewers want to show how brainy and intelligent they are. That again, don't do that. Keep your um, questions clear, simple. Be the be the be the listener's friend. Try and clarify things. Um, I mean, one of the differences between our podcast and almost every other podcast out there is that we edit ours. And and, and and they come down to about 15 or 16 minutes. That is not how long they are when they um, come in. So they are ruthlessly edited. And I not all podcasts have to be like this. I mean, you, you, yours is a much more discursive podcast. And there's definitely room for those podcasts where people kind of chat and so on. But ours is about... Um, philosophical content and so our aim from the beginning has to has been to remove everything that you didn't need to know so that when you listen to those 15 minutes pretty much everything in there has been judged to be worthy of listening to uh, uh, if you like so there's very little fat left um, and that means that you know people don't waste their time. You can get a very good summary of, of, a, of a subject in a very short period of time. Yeah, are there um, are there interviewers that you think are really good at some of the stuff that you've been talking about, like being unobtrusive uh, or having great beginnings and endings, or you know people that you've studied and, and learned from? Is there anyone who comes to mind on that front? Well, not particularly in our very, very small world. I mean, I like Peter Adamson's podcast. Um, so, but, but obviously the world philosophy podcast or media is is minute. Um, so nobody particularly in the world of philosophy, there, there are many, many presenters that I greatly admire. I mean, I should say that it's domain specific. So I'm talking about very particular kind of podcast. Um, there are presenters who I greatly admire on for the main BBC um, news and current affairs program. It's called the the, the, the Today program, um, and and that has a that has somebody called Nick Robinson on it. I think he's a fantastic presenter, but um, he he's, he he sometimes has to be much harder than we, you know. We're not out to grill our interviewees um but obviously he has lots of politicians on his program and he has to get in there very quickly and be very forensic uh and he's yeah, he's very he's very yeah quick-witted and he spots inconsistencies very quickly um so that's a different kind of skill so i would say that the skill of the interviewer is domain specific and i was very much talking about a kind of, the kind of podcast we do where we're trying to 
um, elicit information. So it's it's much more uh, linked to presenters of culture programmes, for example, film programmes or book programmes. And again, there, 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 there are many I, I admire. And um, it's obviously something you get better at. Uh, I mean, some people have got instinctive aptitude for it, but it's something you get better at. It's very useful having working in a place like the BBC because you do get feedback. I mean, it's a very civilised place, the BBC. So you, you, people are, are, are mild with their criticism, but you know, if you've done something wrong, they will tell you. So you, you learn about these kinds of skills. Um, they, you, do, you do need, I'm about to slightly contradict myself because I said you need to be invisible but you can't be so invisible that you have no personality as well. Um, so having a presence in front of a microphone is important. And that's something that's quite difficult to teach, that some people have got a kind of microphone presence and a microphone charisma, and others don't. And interestingly, in radio, often when people are listening to a podcast or listening to a radio, because the visual part of your brain and the sort of audio part of the brain are sort of mixed up, when you're listening to somebody, you can't help but generate a visual image of what somebody looks like. And when you actually meet them, it's a tremendous shock. You know, it's happened to me many times that you think somebody is six foot five and it turns out that they're five foot two and you think they've got a huge head of hair and they're completely bald or something like that. And, and that we all do that. And that's why whenever anybody meets their sort of radio celebs, it's a shock to the system because they've got in their image an idea of what people look like. But So you need a kind of presence in front of the mic, which is yeah, very difficult to, 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 to learn, I think. Or the the opposite of that is, um, you know, when there when you have a figure who you see a bunch but you never hear, for example, like a footballer. So it's like you watch, yes. you know, Ronaldo yes. on the pitch, and it's like yes. this big guy, you know, like this this, and then you hear him talking, like, really, is that what he sounds like? Right, right, right. So, so the classic <laughs> in Britain, the classic case is David Beckham. Yes. Oh my God. Oh yeah. No, I I can't listen to David Beckham talk because. Yeah. I love his image so yeah. much. I'm yeah. so devoted yeah. to the visual existence yeah. Uh, yeah. of, of yeah. him. Uh, that, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a very beautiful man, and then he's, he's got this uh, yes unusual voice. And, and you know, if, if anybody's going to turn me towards religion, it was actually when he first started speaking. I thought oh, there must be a god. You know, cause he's so beautiful and so talented, and and then he's got this you know cosmic <laughs> justice. Like, yeah. Even it out. Um, <laughs> the other, the other football analogy to draw here is uh, that as an interviewer, you don't want to be Mike Dean, the Premier League referee, who loves to insert himself uh, into right. the action. Where his his goal at the right. end of the thing is to have the the headline the right. next day being about the refereeing right. in the match and right. the dramatic, right. un, unmerited red card presented during the game. Right. So I'm about to contradict myself yet again. <laughs> so, for example, in big political interviews. Sometimes the theatre and the showbiz is important. And sometimes interviewers know that they have to ask, ask a question that isn't going to elicit any kind of useful information just because the question has to be put. Um, uh, uh, so, and I don't blame those people for asking that question because part of 
the media is entertainment. And, and, and sometimes you want the cut and thrust, even when it doesn't um, shed much light on a, on a subject. But again, coming back to philosophy, that is not what you want in a philosophy podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got uh, a few minutes left here. So there's a couple other things I want to ask you. Uh, so you have a PhD, you have an academic background, you know, associated uh, in fellowship with Oxford at the moment, uh, and you write books, which we haven't talked about. You've done a lot of stuff that we haven't talked about, uh, um, goes without saying, and you produce po- popular podcasts for your career. But anyway, the point is that uh, this is not wholly dissimilar from the aspirations of the host of this particular podcast uh, in terms of a, cr- a career trajectory and that sort of stuff. So... Uh, my general question is, you know, what is there anything you wish you knew when starting off on this path or any sort of best practices you've developed over the years that uh, you feel have, have, have most helped with sort of being able to cultivate that bringing, you know, intellectual ideas and stories to a broader, broader audience as, as a career? Oh, um, well. I would say that when I started out, I should probably have been more decisive about two inclinations that I have. One inclination is that I want to find out about everything. And the other inclination is that I want to have a degree of high specialism and be a total expert in something. And I was torn between those two dispositions and it was my desire to want to know a bit about everything that drove me into the media and it was my desire to have um, expertise in a small area that is now sort of pushing me in the other direction um and um you know i i I think for somebody like me, it might have been sensible to work out a long time ago which of those two things most uh, interested me, being a specialist or or being a a dilettante, as it were. Um, And I've now moved kind of more into the specialism. I I want to sort of command small areas of of, of the world rather than have a scattergun approach. So trying to work out what you want to get out of life, I think would be a, a, a useful lesson for other people. Um, having said that, I, I mentioned earlier that I think my background in journalism has been very helpful in the kind of philosophy I've ended up doing. So I've, I've ended up being, I guess, a philosopher of ideas, a historian of ideas and all the skills that I've needed for journalism, uh, skills to do with writing and narrative and um, learning how to be succinct and clear, all those kind of writing, important writing skills, which are quite rare in academia generally and, and philosophy in particular, they have stood me in good stead. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but... Um, that's my answer. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so a couple, two, two related questions to, to end on. Uh, so one is that, so, so every 25 episodes or so on another one of your podcasts, Social Science Bites, you do a round of uh, sort of 
collated answers to the question of, of whose work has most influenced you. So uh, I'd like to pose the question to you, whose work has most influenced you? In the world of philosophy, we've mentioned Fredier. So I would start with him because I would never have gone into philosophy, I think, had it not been for Fredier. So he was the one who really energized me and um, got me fascinated in, in the subject. Then the second person is obviously Wittgenstein and in particular the philosophical investigation. So I specialized when I was a postgrad in the later Wittgenstein. And I don't think I ever read the philosophical investigations from start to finish. So I've read the whole of it, but I've only read it sort of in chunks. But I just, you know, I love Wittgenstein and and, and I call myself a Wittgenstein. I think I see the world through a Wittgensteinian lens. He definitely shaped the way I see the world. So he had a big impact on me. Um, I'm currently working on a biography of Derek Parfit. He was my BPhil supervisor and his wife was became my PhD supervisor. And Reasons and Persons was another very important book for me. It came out in 84. I became a postgrad in 86. So it had only come out two years before. And I think, I'm not sure I would have the intellectual energy now to do what I did then, which was read it. I did read that book from cover to cover. And again, I loved every single page. It's, it, I think many philosophers would consider it quite dry, but I just loved the kind of rigor of it. And I was terribly excited by it. And the sort of imagination of it, the extraordinary kind of hypothetical thought experiments that he comes up with. So Reasons and Persons was, again, a, a, a third very, very important book in kind of shaping um, well, how I viewed the world and also my, my career. So it sounds like you may have answered uh, the, the last thing that I was, I was going to ask you about, which are three books that have, that have most impacted you. Uh, and so you have Parfit, Wittgenstein, and uh, Air in that. Would those be the three that you choose for that? Is there something else you'd throw in there? Yeah, I think so. In the world of philosophy and in the world of fiction, yeah. there, have been, there have been books of fiction which have um, had a big effect on me emotionally. Although with most works of fiction... They haven't had a sort of long-lasting effect. I mean, I still remember the feeling of reading them, you know, books like The Grapes of Wrath when, um, by Steinbeck. Um, although most those books had, had an impact on me when I was quite young. And I find these days that very few works of fiction, I mean, I read much less fiction than I used to, but very few works of fiction have that kind of affect on me these days, but they certainly used to, but they weren't long lasting and they didn't shape my politics or anything like that. Why, why um, do you think that they didn't uh, leave a long lasting impact uh, on you in, in, in any evident way? Because, um, well, they broadly, they weren't really, I mean, The Grapes of Wrath is about inequality and it's about depression, it's, it's about the depression and obviously <laughs> the depression was a terrible thing, but I knew that in any case. So intellectually, it didn't bring anything to the table. I, I, I guess it brought a sensibility about the costs of inequality and of poverty. But, you know, I would have got that elsewhere. So I guess it's because 
they didn't come with, um, you know, they didn't affect any kind of, they didn't have to bring an ideological shift at all. Um, they had an emotional impact, but didn't have a long-lasting impact on on how I viewed the world. Would it um, not be true to say, though, that that potentially was the germination of your interest in narrative and story in addition to, to ideas? Sure, they didn't give you an intellectual framework uh, in which to work from, but you've uh, transcended the pure abstract intellectual framework by uh, incorporating stories and historical narratives and, and you know, personal individual situations in that. And that seems like that would have gotten its start by your early interest in fiction. Yes, that's possibly true. That's possibly true. But but there were lots of non-fiction writers who also have great narrative skills. And in fact, most successful popular works of non-fiction have an element of storytelling in them. I mean, in, in, like in the world of social sciences, somebody like Malcolm Gladwell, um, well, he does much more successfully something I try and do, which is convert... Um, academic ideas into something accessible way beyond the academy but he's so brilliant at it because he's such a fantastic storyteller um so you 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 do get those narrative skills from fiction but there are many many good non-fiction writers who also have those skills and i think for to be a very successful non-fiction writer, you have to have those skills. But you, you may be right. That, 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 it wasn't completely wasted in terms of, uh, in, in instrumental terms, in, in, in helping me develop some, some narrative power. All right. Well, Dave, thank you for taking the time to talk. This has been fun. I really enjoyed it. Nice to speak to you, Cody. That was my conversation with David Edmonds. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Evolution.